This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to Synapse, Think Tank of the Air, featuring influencers, creatives, and top leaders in the Twin Cities. And now, here is our host, Steve LeBall. Welcome, I'm Steve LeBeau here with Synapse Think Tank of the Air, and we have two educators with us today from vastly different fields, but I'm sure there's a lot of common threads between them. Uh, on my, my distant right, I don't know if that has any political meaning at all, but uh, we have Tor Dahl, who I uh, understand for many years you taught at the Carlson School of Business. Correct me if I'm wrong. That's correct. Actually, I, I was at five faculties, and I worked there for about um, 40 years. Really? Okay, well, that's, I suppose, I don't know if you got tired of them or they got tired of you, but you kept switching around. That's, it's a good way to keep, be a moving target <laughs> in, in, in such a vast field. And we're here with Philip Schultz from Vocal Essence, where he's the associate conductor versus the other Philip. Right, yes. The other Philip. So this <laughs> yeah, is the, the one with, with two L's. Yeah. And also, this is a long title, but I like it. It's Director of Learning, Engagement, and Community Programs. Right. I guess that's what it's all about. And let's just jump into education. The biggest problem in education now is is engagement. People, students don't stay engaged, or sometimes the teachers don't stay engaged. Well, you know, there's there's structural issues. I would say sometimes with education, it's not that people don't want to learn or people don't want to teach, but there are so many other factors that I think that make it challenging to educate everyone equally or equitably, shall we say. Hmm. I think that transcends the field. I know I see that in, in our world in the music uh, education where, depending on where you live, there's more access to resources and, and teachers than in other areas of, of the, the community. So it's a geographical challenge sometimes. And there are students in both areas who want to learn, and there are hmm. teachers in both areas who want to learn or teach, but the resource uh, resources can be a challenge. That's what I've observed anyway. So resources like what, books or...? Uh, well, science labs, you know, time, you know, the way they schedule in public schools, the amount of time that they allot for certain courses, particularly arts courses, instruments, um, depending on where you live. If, if you want to play an instrument and you can't afford it, you know, some schools provide instruments for students to use mm. at an early age. Other schools don't have those instruments provided. So then students can't start, you know, a violin Right. Grade if the instrument's not there. No violins, you just it. have to whistle. Right, yes. So, <laughs> we can all sing, but yeah, <laughs> that's not what they want to do sometimes. So, Tor, now I know you've taught business, but five faculties, can you, do you remember which five they were? <laughs> can you tell me more of the range of what you've taught? Well, let me first start with education, mm-hmm. because I think in many ways, every child has something in them that will never be delevered down as work. Mm. They are ecstatic about them. You don't have to make them motivated, etc. 
And every good teacher will see through that child. And if you start teaching along this hunger mm -hmm. that the child has, you have created a total, total person when it comes to learning. Mm -hmm. And they will never have any problem with homework or anything that are in, in that particular part. If you take a look at what they do in, in certain places, for example, um, I come from a, from a distant country here. <laughs> I I'm I'm, was born in Norway. And in that, um, uh, Norway lifted everyone up to free education, no matter where it will be, no matter whether it was going to be in Norway or anywhere else. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then they also gave free health care. Right. And these two things created an explosion of progress. Mm -hmm. And that's, that kind of explosion should really be for everyone because you discover immediately that people are beginning to do things that they never would have had. Either they were fearful of it or they hadn't got the uh, ability to get into mm -hmm. that type of education. So I was uh, working with... Uh, uh, associate Dean at the University of Minnesota for a number of years. And in that, we saw several hundred teachers, at least they were, they were hired to teach economics. And the problem there was that it wasn't necessarily what papers they had brought to the University of Minnesota, nor was it uh, anything that was obvious to the eye once you first saw them. But if you study them, you'll find that among the teachers, there were about 5% of them that could read a child or, or a student mm -hmm. and find ways to teach them in ways that nobody had thought of or it was very different. And you ask yourself, what was it about them that, that made them able to do that? Mm -hmm. And it was very simple. <clears throat> it was a communication skill. It is a little bit like um, Mr. Lebeau has. Yes. Mm -hmm. And eventually, you know, you, you, you catch what you need to hear that is relevant to it. Mm -hmm. And teachers like that are worth their weight in gold. Absolutely. So it's too bad we only have 5% of them that, that uh, can communicate. But, but music, that's a whole other form of communication. Oh, sure. And, I mean, it, it crosses, you know, outside of just the musical world, this idea that every child, every student has something that makes them tick, that they love to do, I think it applies to any academic classrooms uh, offering as well. I mean, that's, I, I love what you said about the fact it's about finding, digging deep, deep and finding out what makes that student, you know, want to be at school, what makes them leap with joy, and then using that as the way to, I call it the hook. Mm -hmm. You know, once you have your hook in, then you can begin to reel them in and start teaching lessons on a variety of subject matters. And I think we, we are alike in that sense of, I, I think there's more than 5%. I do think there's more than 5% because of coming back to the structural issue. Some teachers may not find their way. I think they might get caught up in the structural challenges and that becomes so daunting and uh, so discouraging that they don't, dig deeper and find ways to reach every child, they really just have to resort to getting through the day. 
And mm. I taught in public schools, so I've oh, only the, been the on K, a college the, You've faculty. been on the K-12 train? Oh, yeah. I was on the K-12 train in the middle school world. So where people kind of look at you and go, oh, you oh. taught middle school. You're a saint. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a saint, but yes, I've earned, but you, you get I've earned some stars and stripes there <laughs> for sure. Um, and then the university, only when I was doing my PhD or my, my DMA, to be precise, the doctoral musical arts degree at, at the U. Um, so I served there teaching classes, but I've never been on the faculty. But I did see some of the same parallels observing colleagues. You know, in the public schools, there are people who, no matter what is put in front of them, they're going to work hard to find a way to reach their students. And then there are others who, if they get a roadblock, then they just stop pressing. It's not in their DNA to push harder. And that maybe we were talking about the 5%, maybe only 5% push the wall hmm. down. I do believe deeply that I, I would say, and maybe I'm just naive, I think half of the people who are teaching have the gift of teaching, but maybe a good portion of that half haven't really discovered how to motivate every child or every student. Hmm. Well, there's a difference then. I mean, if we're going to talk about music versus economics, the thing about music <laughs> is that it's real. You, know, you can you can actually learn music by listening to somebody uh, play or listening to records or the radio and, and copying it. There doesn't have to be any uh, verbal lesson, mm -hmm. right, uh, conceivably. Whereas economics, somebody just made it all up, right? And and, and the, the attachment to reality is always a matter of debate, <laughs> right? Okay. <laughs> Let me... Your turn, Tor. <laughs> and then I have a surprise for you at the yeah, end. <laughs> Listen, um, when we had World War II here, which apparently you guys won, <laughs> In that, um, about all we want. <laughs> in those 1943 to 1945, you grew by 22 percent per year. What, what grew? Our economy or the our economy? Okay. You know, I'm an economist. I can't do anything else. But let me tell you this: the average growth that has been the case under our current president and the one actually before is 2%. And don't tell me that you somehow have lost the ability to do this. Because I did work with China for a number of years, and China became the most productive country in the world. And uh, I have to say, in doing so, the only reason for that was Japan. Uh, Japan had become the most, most productive uh, country after the United States. During the 60s, you mean? Or, or? From, 19, um, from 1945 up until 1990. Okay. In 1990, it stopped. Because? Because of something that nobody ever seemed to discover. But let me take as a... a um, a chance on this one because I think I know okay. why it stopped. I've got my pen out. <laughs> okay. Uh, if you take um, the work of a, of a fellow by name of Edward Deming, mm -hmm. and Deming said that in a, in a presentation to the best people in Japan, he said, I'm coming here because all the people here in this room are just making crap. Now, Deming could say that because it happened to be true. 
And they all nodded <laughs> and he said, yeah, we're making crap. So he said, you will not get anywhere until every single process is done exactly the same way all the time. And every single product is coming out the same way every time. Mm. That happens to be true. But then what people seemingly missed was that when something was being done and they had said, okay, it is the best that we can do, no change comes. Mm. Oh, they, they reached the point. They're done. Why would you do something that's perfect? One of the most um, admired companies in the world was Toyota. And Toyota, I think the latest count is that they have taken out about 12 million cars. Hmm. Basically, everyone had a suspicion as to what this was. It was the brakes. But that was the same thing everywhere else. When uh, Deming came here, we had a similar kind of, of burst of uh, achievement in companies like uh, IBM or um, three, and a number of companies that you know. But the problem was they are now all pretty much having 2% per year. And that was because the simplest state of telling you what you should do if you're starting a business, there are only two principles. One is sales. Without that, you can't do anything. Number two, and that's much more interesting, is innovation. Mm -hmm. If you don't do both, you are on a downward spiral. Right. So Japan stopped innovating because they thought they were done around yes. 1990. Yep. Yes. Ah. Well, but I can tell you how you can get out of it, but if you know what I add to that, I appreciate it. <laughs> well, I want to. I, I love the idea of this innovation in sales. The, the surprise is that when you were talking about music being tangible and economics not, is that I studied economics as an undergrad as well. Oh, you did. I didn't finish a degree, but that was my other area, doing a dual degree, um, and so ended up more general studies. But had a passion for political science and economics, so I'm, I'm glad to be in the room with you, the expert. <laughs> the innovation com concept is really uh, pertinent because if you think about it um, here in America, and I'll just speak for what I know in America, we really haven't pushed innovation in the way that we did in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, per se. Yes, things are being created now, but it's really along this technological track only. What about being innovative with healthcare? What about being innovative with education? Coming to that again, finding ways for people to have jobs, creative jobs. I think back to uh, the public works projects, you know, with, with the Roosevelt's time. We were building highways and we were finding ways for people to work. And you're absolutely right. We were growing because everyone was a part of the growth. And that doesn't seem to be an innovative concept, but it really is in today's times. This idea, if, it, if everyone has a way to feel uh, empowered to grow and to achieve, that we will all do better and we'll all gain more, that seems to be in the minority right now um, as far as innovation. Instead, those who are at the top of the pay scale, the top of the food chain, seem to want to keep it all to themselves. They've got it and they want more. Yeah, and I, I think 
if you did the numbers right, if you were to spread the wealth and you lift from the bottom, that we all would gain more together. And maybe I should go move to Norway. I mean, maybe that's what it is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, well, Will, Rod- Will Rogers, um, he was an advocate for uh, that you don't need all the money. Let the poor people have the money. You'll have it by nighttime anyway. <laughs> It'll just circulate in the economy and right, all. Just, yeah, move it around, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, in 1989, I was asked to come to China. And I, I got from other people the realization that they had looked to Japan. And remember, this was not in 1990. It was 1989. So they were still unbeatable. They were superstars mm-hmm. at that time. So I was called in by uh, the Academica Sinica. It is the wetting thing. They're mm-hmm. going to send whatever they think was good coming out of people who seem to be good at that. And then they will, they will copy. So I was there, and I was sitting at, um, next to the guy who, who was the uh, head of the academy. Mm-hmm. Then I, I realized that he had looked at me and she looked at the, the beginning that I was going to start. And the start uh, that I was, had was that I had been, I'd been admiring Chinese all over the world because they're all doing very well, mm-hmm. except in China, mm. which was true. And then uh, I realized that I was a pygmy in that. There were people with Nobel Prizes and all kinds of other prizes. And I started to take Take that out, that first sentence. And then the guy who was in charge of the academy leaned over and said, don't you worry. I'm a Minnesota golfer. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So I went with that. Mm -hmm. And eventually I was asked um, directly whether Japan should be copied. And I said to them, you are basically Buddhists. And in Buddhism comes the definition of productivity. And that definition is to do the right thing in the right way all the time. If you're going to f- screw up, you have to do the wrong thing. Or you have to do it um, in such a way that uh, you don't do it all the time. And, I, and you have to realize that this is your own history. Once you did that, you were the kings of the world. They really were. And I said, I can guarantee you that once you do that, you will get quality for free. Quality was Japan. They were masters at that. And I didn't know what were to happen as a result of this. But I found out afterwards that China had built about 500 productivity improvement centers. Hmm. And that were the centers that did the right thing in the right way all the time. Like Buddhist temples. Well, Buddhist temples, <laughs> in a way, yeah. In a, in a way. Well, if you're, if you're attributing it to, to attitude. Now, the thing that counters innovation 
is when you have principles. Because principles never change. We've got to keep it this way. And I think that's there's a lot of that going on. When, when I think that's in contrast to pragmatism. Pragmatism is that action is the basic structure of how to understand everything in our world. And to... Um, and, and so, therefore, principles are always kind of tentative. This works for now, so it's always like pragmatism is whether it works or not, right? And what you're saying is if it doesn't work anymore, change it. But if you stick to a principle, they say, well, this is the way we've always done it. This is the way we believe it. You know, Almighty says this is the way to do it, <laughs> right? And whether the Almighty is a political party or a government or, or a professor with a book. So, anyway, that's... Little pontification there. We'll be back with uh, Synapse Think Tank of the Air after this. Synapse Think Tank of the Air. We'll be back in a moment. back, Synapse Think Tank of the Air, and we have two educators that, uh, boy, they're an awful lot similar, more similar than I thought. We have with us uh, Tor Dahl, who we know he does economics. We're not sure of this whole range of abilities. And uh, uh, Philip Schultz from Vocal Essence, who's a, a musician, conductor, musical educator, and other things involving engaging the community. But you studied economics, too. So now, what is it? Do you have two sides to your brain, or what? We all do. Um, we you could come and make music with me too, both of you. Um, no, I grew up in a household where my father owned a business. He owned a clothing store named Saul and Harry's. So everyone always laughs. Me being African American, they would walk in. We'd like to see Saul or Harry, and then my dad would walk out, and they're like, "Oh, <laughs> you know, he bought it from these two Jewish brothers, and just kept the name because it was uh, tailored uh, custom suits and things like that for for men." So I grew up around numbers and around people my whole life. Hmm. Um, I was either there on weekends, you know, at the front door greeting people or I was running the register and my dad would quiz me. You know, we would do math in our head. That was our little fun game. So he'd give me a stream of numbers with, you know, uh, some type of either plus or minus, whatever, and I'd have to come up with the answer and love that. So I did develop this side of that pragmatic working with people, love of math and numbers and, you know, percentages and profit loss Right. You know, you grow up in an entrepreneur's house, you, you want to know if you're going to get a gift at Christmas or not. So, you know, <laughs> did you make any money, Dad? Um, but at the same time, I studied music. And hmm. so that was always my deep passion. My other love of sports. So you're, um, we're and, rounded. And, you're a rounded human being. That's another whole podcast is this whole balance <laughs> of, you know, talking about economics, the economics of sports, being someone who loves sports, it still blows my mind how much money we invest in the sports arena and if we just took a tenth of that and put it back to education right. um, or innovation in other ways, sticking with that, th- that thread, to think of how much further our country could be along here. Well, mm-hmm. I, as a journalist, I look at it, and they have a whole section of the paper. I mean, here we have all these things going on that are not covered, but we got a whole <laughs> section for sports. We don't have that for the arts. We don't have that for, you know, the community. You know, that's a good point. I should be offended that we don't have an arts section but the one section of the paper that I read is the sports section these days. <laughs> so you're contributing to the problem. I'm contributing to the problem, and I have never realized that oh. paradox. So thank oh. you. Okay, well that's that's fine. <laughs> one one paradox down. But the the um, 
Tora, I still want to find out the breadth of your knowledge because I know you've traveled around the world a lot. You're advising China to, to be more Buddhist, I guess. But well, they what, what, called again. They called again? Wow. They called again because now they were down to 7% growth. Oh, mm. slow down. And you have to remember, it was 12%, 12. at one time. Famous in uh, the Silicon Valley. Oh. But I already had stumbled across something which uh, I thought was um, very, very exciting and will change everything. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, on a trip to Russia, and uh, I was uh, working with the uh, economic advisor to um, the richest man in the world at that time, and Microsoft. And then I realized that Putin had uh, hauled in an economist who had told him that he could only grow at 6% per year. So I used, um, I'm sorry, I used the word bullshit <laughs> because, you know, with the U.S. in the 22% a year, and uh, this was silly. So I said, that's not true. So I'm going to take uh, just uh, a few seconds telling you that in terms of any company, it doesn't matter where it is and what it does, uh, there are 23 things that will sink it. And usually they have between five to seven of those things. Mm. And the only thing that is always in there, in, in the 400 companies that we have worked in, um, the only thing that appears with certainty is communication. Mm. So you realize right now that when you communicate with music mm -hmm. and you communicate as a journalist, that is the lifeblood of teaching. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So here comes the interesting part. It turned out that when, uh, when I did get the data from, uh, not from Tutin himself, Putin. <laughs> Putin, Tutin, that's another uh, way to look at him. I'm sorry, I think I'll go with him, Tutin. <laughs> and <clears throat> I got this um, data that made it possible to figure out how much he could grow with. And what, what I did was to realize that it was only three things that had uh, that caused a problem from him. And I, to this day, don't really know why. I think it has something to do with dictatorship or things like that. Mm -hmm. But here is what happened. I said to Loretta, who was sitting out there when you uh, came in, what, what was the case when you have three things only? There's something special with those things. And the only thing Putin wanted to get was per capita income. That's it. And I said, please run these three things against the capital income of all the nations in the world. And see if that has any... You're looking for what we call an R-square. With what precision can you predict per capita income once you know those three things. And do you know what the three things are? No. <laughs> Freedom, mm -hmm. safety, mm -hmm. and being treated the way you should be treated. Mm. Uh, treated in this case is justice. And so uh, Putin, uh, 0 for 3? <laughs> well, let me tell you. Okay. First, if you look at um, the R-square for this, it was 96%. Mm -hmm. 
You know, when I did physics uh, in the in the lab, I never were even near the proving the the things that mm -hmm. were lost in physics. Right. I never got ninety six percent, but I got it on this one, and I think this one is the single most important thing that we have overlooked. Now let's give you one little example here. Uh, when Norway did its uh, thing with free education and free healthcare, they had left behind almost all the problems they used to have. Mm. And once they don't have any problems to speak of, then they do what they love to do. Mm -hmm. They can do what they love to do. Freedom. Freedom. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Safety. Safety. Mm -hmm. And justice. And justice. You feel mm. valued. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I'm thinking that is the same for any company I work mm -hmm. in. That's the same for any family I know. And that I think it is an overlooked natural law here that wasn't part of the way physicists think and the way a number of other people think. Mm. And that's where I think we have an almost unlimited amount, amount of potential, no matter where you are. Mm -hmm. Because it brings the best out on the people and it, it maximizes the income. In the United States, and I think other places, there seems to be an opposition or a balance. You can either have safety or freedom. So if the more safe you feel, the more freedoms they take away. I mean, that's what this whole... Uh, terrorism thing, right? You you lose your a lot of your constitutional rights, and the more freedom you have, the more dangerous it is. So you're saying they can be compatible; and they don't have to be opposed. They unleash us, mm -hmm. all the talents, all the contributions, all of the way that tickles somebody, because the biggest problem were gone. Hmm. Like a load off your well, back. Well, it's interesting that in thinking of this. We've been, I don't want to say tricked, because I do want I hope all people of all political sides listen to the think tank here, but I may push some people into a corner for a moment here. It's your perspective of what safety is and what the most important uh, factor is contributing towards your safe feeling of safeness or lack thereof. And we've been tricked in my mind to think that terrorism or outside forces wanting to attack us is our biggest threat, when in reality it isn't. You know, in reality, it's the people who are perpetrating this, this mind mentality of us versus the world. So you know, there's America first versus the world. That's turned us around now to think of well, we have to protect our borders, which is in turn doing exactly what you're saying. We've now turned our mind around. We have to be safe, so we'll give these things up to be safe, which is stripping away the other two factors. So even if people feel safe, they don't realize they're giving up several freedoms and they're also giving up the justice piece. Because there's a difference between a threat and the perception of a threat, mm -hmm. which can, you, you inspire fear, right? Right. So uh, it's just, I think it's a topic that Tor and I have talked about previously is that people basically run on emotion. Uh, reason kind of comes in afterwards to, mm -hmm. to rationalize things. So how do you, now Norway 
when you first said they have free health care and free education, my thought was, well, that's un-American. What, what, what are you doing that for? Well, you there, have there the people, same taxes as the U.S. The same taxes? Same percentages, yeah. basically, yeah. roughly. Yeah. So the, but the U.S. You know, spends 18 to 19 percent of the total gross national product on health. Mm-hmm. And they are ahead of... Um, ahead of... Um, a lot of countries, but not Slovenia, for example. What do you mean ahead? The they are um, longer life expectancy mm-hmm. and healthier people. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at people, uh, how they die, um, basically Minnesota dies of nine different things. And um, the reason we die is that we haven't figured out how we should have lived in the first place. And here comes that. The study was made starting in, in 1920. And in 1920, they uh, kept track of what people died of all the way up to our days. And the first is sort of obvious. It is alcohol and it is smoking. It will take you out quicker than you ever would have liked to. But we discovered two things that became significant very recently. And that was the, the interesting thing of children being raised as happy children had a self-motivated part into it that expanded their life. And the second thing was any relationships you have. Maybe not all types of relationships, but the fact that you, like we are sitting here now, or if you have a, a, somebody to conduct mm-hmm, sure. and so forth, this makes you live longer. Mm-hmm. Now, there isn't any doctor who probably are aware of this. Maybe, maybe there are. But doctors are disease-oriented. And I'm thinking in many ways where... Um, we think that probably you can do twice, you can live twice as long if you, if you use these kinds of principles because you are also happy when that happens. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you mentioned that because we have started to do some real research in the choral music field around the world now um, on all age spectrums, whether it's young children through senior adults. We found that when you sing together, a few things happen. A, the heartbeats begin to link up and you start to, your pulses begin to normalize around the room as you're singing together. You synchronize. Yeah, it's an interesting phenomenon there that you breathe together, you sing together, and you you synchronize there. It's it's a beautiful thing. But these positivity feelings, these endorphins that are about joy and sense of belonging and well-being, those kick in, that safety piece again that you referred to earlier, you find a community that you're a part of, that there's value and there's worth. And so people come back to singing for the community aspect as much as for the musical side of things. Yes, you want the great musical joy of the performance in front of people, but the process of rehearsing together or singing together, we're finding great um, research saying that this is an important part of well-being. With senior adults, it's particularly stunning. Uh, We've run a program now here in the Twin Cities called Vintage Voices, where we've partnered with either senior centers, community centers, or uh, 
health-related centers. And what we're finding, the, the singers who have Alzheimer's or dementia or other conditions with memory loss or well-being, they are saying, I feel better after rehearsal. My memory is improving after rehearsals, after singing together. I have something that I want to do so that keeps me motivated throughout the week as I look forward to the next rehearsal. I have people that I want to be around. I have something new to learn. Um, and this keeps me going. And so we hope to do, we haven't done it at Vocal Essence yet, but we hope to do some type of longitudinal study with some other folks as a consortium to get more quantitative data with that, those anecdotal um, things that we're hearing. Hmm. Um, so I just think it's fascinating what you've said there. It, it makes perfect sense that could we figure this out in America? So uh, stop smoking, lose 10 pounds, and join a choir. Let me tell you a, a, li a little story. Hmm. There was somebody who was uh, hospitalized at, um, at the military thing we have here in town. And then they couldn't reach him. Hmm. And nobody seemed to be able to speak any language that he could do. So they called in for somebody who was a very good friend of mine. And she realized right away what it was. So she started to sing. Elsa den där hemma, Elsa far och mor. Greet my parents, greet them both, that kind of thing. And tears started to come. And there was a totally different person mm -hmm. who was lying there in bed now. And I'm thinking, I can recall, it was in the, in the, the Tabernacle Choir, Utah, first time I'd uh -huh. been there. And uh, I, I walked up to it, and there was the, um, the guy who, who is, was the best conductor in the world, American. Uh -huh. And he was doing the Christmas songs. That was in July. And I couldn't stop these uh, tears from coming hmm. because it was really perfect in every which way. And it's an enormous thing when you have that big a choir. Oh, yes. Absolutely. And good acoustics, good resources. Mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely. And it makes me think of the Estonian Song Festival. I don't know if you've ever gone to Estonia when they have their big song festival. It's that same kind of feeling of the thousands of people singing songs that, yes, some of which have you know, great national pride or the stories you know, from the Kavala or whatnot that are being lived out that they've grown up with. But just that sheer act of those voices singing together, it's, it's overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, we're here on Synapse Think Tank of the Air. It should become a trio, I think, before we're done. <laughs> I'm Steve LeBeau. We're here with Tor Dahl and Philip Schultz. We'll be back in a moment. I've got to run to the restroom. Okay. This is getting interesting. Yeah, I want to get back to the GDP because I'm curious. I would love that. Here. I want to know how much of the uh, GDP they spend in, in Norway on, you know, education and also healthcare, you know, compared to what we spend. Yeah, um, you spend about um, between five and six percent. Mm -hmm. Norway spends a little bit more, um, and Finland also spends a little bit more. But the um, the larger picture here is that these are money extraordinarily well spent, and. I remember that the first thing we realized when we had both um, the health and the, uh, shall we say, 
if I go back to where my dad and my mother marched in the streets, they were only after these two things, health and education. And that happened when I was 12 years of age. Mm-hmm. And uh, when that came, the, the people's... Um, the people searched out the things that would give them the most pleasure and the most money also sometimes, Republicans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and what happened then was that not only did this money part, you know, rocket from that thing alone, mm-hmm. but since they were able to go to any place in the world to study, they get the best teachers. We'll be back with uh, Synapse Think Tank of the Air after this. Synapse Think Tank of the Air. We'll be back in a moment. And we're back, uh, Synapse Think Tank of the Air. Boy, we should be singing. We should be singing together. We should be forming uh, choirs. Instead of having the fire department go around, we need to have, uh, like, what, trucks full of uh, uh, choral singers? Sounds good Musicians. to Because okay. <laughs> we're all singers at heart. Well, so, well I, I, um, the fellow that wrote everything I needed to learn, I learned in kindergarten. I think uh, Fulgham, something like that, if you remember that book. Uh-huh. Uh, he told about a story that uh, one day he was visiting an elementary school, and later on he visited a college. And so he thought, well, I'm going to ask the same question. So in the elementary school, he said, how many people can sing? Everybody raised their hand. How many people can draw? Everybody raised their hand. So then he went to the college and said, how many people can sing? You know, 100 people, maybe three hands go up. How many can draw? Same thing, about five hands go up. Something happened there. Our education got, got, got the, uh, the fun beat out of us. So... You have to keep. You have to keep it alive. Well, I want to go back to Taurus three. You, you take the three, <laughs> the freedom, right? And the freedom piece with that is, is we don't have enough opportunities to explore our creativity. I mean, we are by design expressive beings who are designed to be in community with each other, creating together. And our education systems don't really provide the venue or vehicle to support that. The safety piece: if you don't do it well, you're judged. And once you're judged, oh, the gong, you know, hit the we, gong. Exactly. Those shows that, you know, choose the winners and things like that. Everything's competition, right. which is my mode of, of learning. I'm a competitor, but it's a problem because if you can't win or if you're not good at it, you stop doing it. And so for me, then we, we lose the justice piece, which mm. is it's equitable for everyone to explore these artistic endeavors. I think that's what's happened from age five to age 20. You get weeded out. You do, and then you think that I can't do this. I can't tell you the number of people that I see, because I I run a church ministry as well, and if we're singing hymns and I'm trying to teach them something and then I'll go to someone after the service, you know, you didn't sing. Oh, I I was told not to sing in fifth grade. (laughs) They put me in the back row and said, just move your lips. And they laugh, and I cry on the inside and get right. angry because it's like they've done you such a disservice. Because it's true. That's they've, what happens. They've taken your voice away. Hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And then you hear people, they only sing in the shower because they can be relaxed and think nobody can hear them. No but wo- they have fun. And no wonder we love the shower, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's the best time of the day for some of us. Take a nice long shower. Then your muscles get relaxed. You get the hot water on there. <laughs> We're talking here with um, a musician, Philip Schultz, musician, conductor, educator, and Tor Dahl. Are you a musician at all, Tor? Well, I actually played in a band once. Ah, <laughs> well, that counts. It does. <laughs> what what instrument? Uh, guitar. And it was at a fancy hotel in Bergen, Norway. Wow. <laughs> but I have to tell you that that's no, no good compared to I know what you do, and I know what the other Philip does. Yeah. <laughs> in many ways, you know, you sit on... Um, for example, the travel route that you hinted at, there isn't anything that awakens you more than travel. Um, when Once you are briefed a little bit about what you shouldn't say or do or whatever, you then fit in. And it, they, will, they will now trust you and they will tell you everything you need to know. And... The intriguing part is that it is so amazingly human. All of these people have a human core. And if you can talk to that core, then travel becomes an adventure, an incredible achievement to to learn. If you're able to talk to the actual people instead of being on a tour where some person from your own country points things out and you only hang out with other Americans, right? That's kind of a, it's almost like virtually visiting another country but not actually visiting it. That's true. Every um, major city abroad have a, um, shall we say, a a kind of, um, uh, I don't know how to explain it, but I know where they are in every major town that I've been to. And they then talk English to each other, regardless of where they come from. While the most interesting thing, you know, is what people are doing with what they have and what what art they have. And and that's what has so much power. I don't know if you can do without art or music because it it carries a um, force that we react to visceral. I mean, people do end up with tears. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, if you go, for example, um, and look at the most stunning... I once uh, traveled to um, Germany just to see one uh, painting by Rembrandt, mm. uh, the man with the golden helmet. And um, yeah, I noticed in Germany they often... Uh, Make up the names of children after their helmets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Helmut Kohl right. and Helmut. That's right. <laughs> Helmut Schmidt. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I, I couldn't get away from that uh, painting for quite some time because it was that kind of impact. And everyone knows it that does that. And that's why it is important that you do all of these things, you find time for them. And uh, if necessary, you take your, in my case, my daughter with me and, and let's see that together because it doubles the pleasure, triples it maybe. Yeah, and you're paying it for another generation to have that 
curiosity to dig deeper. I, I think the same thing with travel applies to not just the works of art, but the the architecture, which yeah. is art in of itself. Um, the, the layout of the cities, I think of the, especially the European countries that I've been to and cities that I've been to in, in uh, so the major ones like Rome and Paris and uh, the different cities in Germany and, and throughout the UK. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to get to Norway and, and Finland and Sweden soon. That's, That's like right. on my list there it's, for my it's family. On my list too. <laughs> <laughs> so I can't speak to those, but I have some friends there. And it, the same thing applies. It's just the way the cities were set up and the stories that come from how the cities emerged um, organically and intentionally. And then the food. I think all of those leave this powerful impression with you, too, that you come back and you, you know, we have picture books and we tell stories um, and we relive those moments with our friends. In many ways, it's similar to an artistic performance or a work of art, that same kind of impact that we have. From it's like we've been in a movie and now we're out of it. Right. And <laughs> yeah. then we're telling our friends about it. Mm -hmm. You have to see this movie. And then and say so you, you had to be there. Exactly. I was with, uh, with some folks uh, not too long ago new friends, and I've never known anyone to do this before, but uh, they catalog every family trip. So there's a room, there's a sunroom, and I was like, what's on the bookcase? Oh, this is the picture book from all of our trips. So every trip, and this is a family that has the means to travel often. I mean, every family event, family reunions, trips, birthdays, there's a book for it. And I thought, what a fabulous idea. You can go back to 1999 and Here's grandma's birthday celebration. And you relive those memories. It's, it becomes a, a piece in time that you get to not only re relive yourself, but share with the next generation. Those next books generation. those books became artworks. They did. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a part of that wellness piece, that piece of living longer. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you would think that um, everyone would appreciate art, but it's the first thing to get cut in schools, right? They, uh, STEM is like the big hero now. Yeah. What is it? Science, Science technology. technology. Yep, education and, and math. Yeah, right, math. math. Yeah. Engineering and math. Engineering Sorry, and math. Took me a second there. <laughs> All the fun topics. And uh, is it that way in Norway? I mean, do they emphasize the arts when you go to school? Well, number one, the first thing we discovered when education became free was that um, there were far more girls in particularly the, the high rankings in, at, at the, the universities. Mm. That was interesting because you have to remember that the two laws were passed in Norway that you have never heard of. One was that people who were um, laborers should have a representation on the board. When that happened, strikes started to go down. Because they were included. They were included. Mm -hmm. that, that third principle the, of exactly being exactly. treated like you want to be treated. Number two, they passed a law that says that women was going to be part of every board in, uh, you know, in Norway. And at least 40%. Hmm were going to be women. And then we discovered that women were quite possibly better leaders than men. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And suddenly you had another increase in GDP hmm. that 
was different than it would have been before. What time period did this? Well, these are relatively recent. Okay. But they came in with data that was persuasive. And uh, there's no reason to believe that that will run its own course because there's a certain amount of pride in both of them. Mm -hmm. For example, in the places where companies were about to go under and the workers were on the board, they actually found a solution to all of it. Mm. But some of the companies had to be closed. It was just that suddenly it was important that these people will have other opportunities when it comes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't dispute the information. I would say that in my personal experience, I've enjoyed working with women as either the head of a division or the head of the organization, particularly in churches. I much prefer working with female pastors mm-hmm. than male pastors. It's something about the intentionality of the leadership. And again, we're painting with a broad brush here. Mm-hmm. You know, they're great male leaders, obviously, but there's something different and intentional that I've observed um, often about being objective about things mm. and being able to collaborate. Well, in, in Norway, to, to respond so well to facts that they, they discovered, mm-hmm. one of the big frustrations I have in our country today is, is facts are not well regarded. Right, it's yeah, uh, how can you have a good? How can you be? Fake, right? <laughs> pardon me. <laughs> at least by certain people. <laughs> well, well, that's it. But it's I mean, it's a good percentage of the people. I mean, roughly one third of the people uh, deny uh, science. Mm-hmm. I read that, according to one survey, more people believe in heaven than believe in evolution, which is kind of astounding to a guy that that likes to study that stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, so how can you teach? when people don't believe your premises. Mm-hmm. How can you lead them on? Music is self-evident, but once again, I'm going to pick on economics. You can make an economic argument, but we still get this trickle-down theory that if you give more to the rich people, it'll trickle down to us, but it never happens. Never happens. What, what's wrong with that theory? Well, it is uh, the difference between um, wishful thinking, which is, I would like the economy to be like this. And then if you say it often enough, they will start thinking, yeah, it must be true. It isn't. And uh, the issue when that happens is the hardest thing you have, if, particularly if you teach undergraduates, because they come in with the loathing of their parents. And the parents are wishful thinkers uh, if they have taken economic courses that aren't comprehensive. I think uh, right now, for example, today, actually, uh, we are hit by tariffs, which is we haven't done tariffs to speak of for a long, long time. And that's for good reason. Um, any, any trade that is free, that one is going to benefit two parties, mm-hmm. always. Now that we have taken and clamping down on Canadian friends are probably our best friends, mm-hmm. and uh, a number of other people that are hit by that. We go, we go back to a finding that existed several hundred years ago. They knew it. 
That was the last thing you should do, putting a tax on top of a tax. And I think economics carries, um, let's say, for example, that you are serious about uh, growth. Well, you start at the bottom with things. You need either people, more people, or you need a um, productivity improvement. Those are the only two things that will help you grow. You have other things that comes in, really, in, uh, in by genius kids and others who invented things. But here we are, we are stopping immigration from coming. Um, now, China did that too. They, they did it primarily because they were running out of, of, of a number of things, food among other things. And then they forced one child only. And now they have rethought that. But you have to realize that they are going to be, they are 1.2 billion people. They're going to be the leading power on this earth. You would think that maybe the United States would consider maybe not 1.2 billion, <laughs> but at least in, in the, uh, being part of something that is able to defend themselves. But then you can't have more kids because education is so expensive and so is health care. So, so those principles kind of keep the population down. And then you, you add to, to that blocking your borders against immigrants. It's well, self-defeating, isn't it? Let me see now. It was a Syrian who, de who developed the most productive company in the United States. A Syrian? Yes. What, which company is that? That was uh, the company that gave us the... Um, uh, actually, you, are, you have a telephone on you? Mm -hmm. I do. That's <laughs> like to look to it up. Yeah. 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 So we don't need to <laughs> wonder about yeah, this. Yeah, we can find we can it right yeah. Look it up. Is it here? <laughs> We're here. We're here on uh, Synapse Think Tank of the Air. We have a, uh, just a couple minutes left, actually. We Hopefully, can, we can look it up quickly. Oh, I can look it up. We're here with uh, Tor Dahl, who uh, studied economics, and I'm still puzzled about that because you have different economi uh, economists that disagree, whereas um, in music, you have people disagree on what's the, your favorite song or what genre do you like best, but they don't disagree on whether he hit that note or not, right? So no. there's there's more more coherence in 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 music and and more mystery in in economics. Uh, here we're also Philip Schultz, the the music. So can you address that? Why 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 do economists disagree? Well, there are some people that I would say would be wishful thinkers. Wishful thinkers. Yeah, they wish that the economist was that that it was. But for example, yesterday you had. Um, and a uh, very good economist get the Nobel Prize. And the Nobel Prize he got was the, uh, the prize that had indicated that it was possible, together with another economist, to calculate what you will do to dampen the horrible weather that we are now fearing, and that we are only 2.5% away from something that could be the greatest catastrophe that the world could have. So you're talking about global warming and the effect it can have on climate. And, and it uh, took an economist to get that out. Economist. Now, how, how come a, the meteorologist didn't figure it out? 
Well, they had trouble enough with the actual... But tomorrow. <laughs> tomorrow's tomorrow. weather. <laughs> they think long-term. So, so economists, they think big. That's one of their virtues. That's one of their virtues. Oh. But, well, you know, uh, we, we're just about have to leave now. I don't know if we'll be able to uh, get that. Yeah. But, but Tor... Harder than I thought. Tor, you need to write a book, uh, just Tor's numbers. And each each chapter would be... The three things that you need to live happy. The, the 23 things to boost your economy. And then every, every chapter can be some set of numbers because you, you have it all nailed down. <laughs> Thank you very much. I am already writing that book. Okay. Oh, well, good. Well, then we'll, well just. You've got two readers here. <laughs> and it must be Steve Jobs that you were talking about. Yeah. yeah Steve oh, Steve Jobs. Jobs. Yeah. Oh, okay. I had no idea it was Syrian. Jerry Seinfeld's Syrian, too. I didn't know that either. So okay, we well, we're, we're learning a lot, and there's more to learn, and I'm afraid we're out of time, but I'd like to thank you for joining us. Two educators, and boy, do I feel educated now, and I, I feel like singing, and um, I, I'm still not sure about it. Doing your taxes? Yeah. I, yeah right. right, and uh, uh, dripping, dripping down, I guess that's what I'm going to do. But thank you uh, so much, Tor Dahl and uh, Philip Schultz from Vocal Lessons. Uh, enjoyed having you here on Synapse Think Tank of the Air. Special thanks to Dan Culhane, our engineer. And once again, this is a co-production with WCCO Radio, our media partner. Thank you for listening to Synapse. Think Tank of the Air. I'm Leo Espinosa. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.